You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Boston Strongcast. I'm going to do a, uh, a little solo episode today. Last night in the gym, I, one of the newer lifters in our group I was having a conversation with about some of the variations. and um, There was an article that Mike Teixeira of Reactive Training Systems posted um, this, this past week. It was, I think it was titled Self-Organizing Technique, and it was talking about... Uh, there should be some like deal breakers with technique, obviously, like nobody should be doing anything uh, with the lifts that would injure them. And of course, if you compete in powerlifting, you need to be lifting within the rules of the sport. So obviously, you know, you have to be squatting to depth. Your ass has to be on the bench, uh, th- those types of things. So ke- keeping it safe, following the rules are, I mean, those are no brainers. Every coach should be following those. And I don't, you know, outside of like the the few ridiculous posts you see on the internet, which my guess is most of them are fake anyways. Um, that's not an issue. Um, however, you know, working with Shiko for three years, it was drilled into me that technique is the most important aspect of training. And that training is basically this long-term focus on correcting technique. So that's kind of how I've always set up my programs. Um, there were like some other things in the article. Um, you know, I wasn't saying it wasn't saying that technique doesn't matter. Um, it was saying that you know every coach needs to have kind of like these rules of the lifts of things that they want to see. You know, like um, I think a big one like on the. You know, I talked a lot about this with other coaches like Ryan and Zach and Jeremy about Carrie's deadlift, like finding middle ground. Like she's probably never going to pull with a completely flat back, but we still want her. She pulls she pulls sumo and we still want her shoulders behind the bar. Um, So like that type of thing, you know, like the shoulders have to be behind the bar, but maybe I'm not going to drill the flatten out your back type thing. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. And, you know, there are times too, where if something works for somebody, so Nick Santangelo is, I think the only one out of the 40 people I coach in this sport that squats looking down. Um, but what people really don't know is Nick tried for an entire block. Like I want to say it was at least 12 weeks to squat with his head up. He felt more comfortable with his head down. So he put his head down, um, you know, 99% of the time I'm going to force a lifter to look up in the squat, maybe even more than 99% of the time. But Nick has a very elite squat squats, 620 at 93 kilograms. So, you know, it's a, it's a good squat. He's earned the right to do what's more comfortable. He kind of knows what works for him. So I kind of leave that, I leave that piece alone. Um, but again, like, like I was saying, like working with Shiko technique was drilled into me as the most important aspect of training. And that training is kind of like a, uh, lifelong 
journey into correcting technique, right? It's never going to be perfect and there's always going to be things to work on, especially for the majority of lifters who get into lifting later on in life. Uh, most of my lifters played different sports growing up, played sports in college, and you know they're not getting into lifting until their 20s. So they've developed um, strengths based strengths and weaknesses based off of the sports that they were doing that they were doing previously. Um, you know, and I, I use two examples of uh, people who I don't necessarily force to what I would consider use, you know, using perfect technique. Um, but also the two of them are elite lifters. So they have earned the right to have a little bit of wiggle room. A complete beginner, absolutely not. There is no wiggle room um, for technique. Um, A beginner hasn't been lifting long enough where they know their body and their lifts well enough where they can make adjustments going against the rules. Um, so if you've been lifting for a very short amount of time, you know, I consider a beginner anywhere from like zero to three years with very limited competition experience. Um, but there are times where obviously that's not just like a, a hard, fast rule either. You know, if I have somebody who's been lifting for two years and they have a, you know, a massive total and a chance to get a podium spot at nationals or something that's completely different like i'll i'll allow them to bend the not bend the rules a little bit but i'll be less um firm on some of those rules with somebody like that but the majority of the lifters i get are relatively new if not brand new to the sport uh and they're going to practice perfect technique we're not going to i mean there's going to be reps obviously that are bad in uh in training and stuff and that's why we train it's practice to get better but in in the majority of my cases and nick and carrie have been with me for years so in, in the beginning i was a little bit less uh lenient with some of those with some of those rules uh with their lifts so you know for me i one part of the article i'm kind of bouncing around a little bit i'm half a cup of coffee in uh, but that I really liked was not yelling cues constantly, right? Kind of letting the lifter figure it out. Um, when I first first started, I was in a local I was in a local gym here. Uh, I was doing the I did the whole MMA thing for like ten years, so I, I really didn't care about lifting at all. Um, I'd maybe go into the gym a couple days a week and just kind of, I wouldn't squat or bench or anything like that. I would just kind of do some like single leg stuff, some upper body stuff, you know, some, maybe some turf work type, type stuff. I was never really like pushing weights. I just couldn't like, I was too, like my joints were just too banged up from, uh, you know, all the, all the fighting stuff. So when I stopped doing that, I I like competing. It's it's kind of like I've been competing in something my entire life. So I decided to get into this whole powerlifting thing. And when I first started, so you know I'm, I was starting. I hadn't put a straight bar on my back in you know probably like eight years, if not longer. So I was a complete beginner trying to learn how to squat. And when I was doing it, I had the gym owner of this place just literally just yelling every step of the process to me the whole time I'm trying to do it. And it was extremely distracting. And it was it was 
it was hard to like you're not even figuring it out because you're not paying attention to how it feels to be under the weight and how to go through the movement I was just focused on his voice in my ear the entire time and it made things very difficult and kind of confusing and uh, it slowed down the process a little bit uh, when I finally you know I did that for a few weeks and then I hired Chico as my coach so and once that happened obviously because he lives in Russia the feedback wasn't immediate and I do think you know the benefits of in-person coaching is getting that immediate feedback at times and I think it can like really obviously speed up the process but I also like really appreciated the fact that I kind of had to figure it out for myself so the fact that he wasn't close and I you know I wasn't going to get the feedback on this stuff for a little while it just it forced me to just lift um and that's kind of what I, you know, I I knew what I was supposed to do. Like, you know, I, I read a blog on the internet once that told me how I was supposed to squat. So, you know, I had a general idea. And then f- from there, I could just apply his feedback a- as it came in. And it was just getting used to lifting. And I think that was one of the most beneficial things in the beginning of, of my lifting. And, you know, not even just as an athlete, but as a coach. Like, it just let me focus on doing it and figuring it out. So... Um, for all all the beginners that I have that I get when they listen to this this will make more sense now like that first like four weeks of them training I'm literally doing exactly what Mike talks about in that article I'm making sure that they're following the rules of the sport um, making sure they're not going to kill themselves and just letting them train Um, the first couple days like I kind of explain to them what I want so when they come in I do like you know, they might take somewhere between 60 and 70 percent in all three just for some triples, some like light work. I'll give them some feedback on their lifts on that one day. And then for the next month, I just let them go for it. Like they just need some time under the bar. And of course, if they're doing something that can be fixed easily, I'm going to I'm going to say something quick. But, in, you know, they just need to get used to training and not relying on me and feeling the weights. Um, so in those types of situations, I definitely use it. Um, you know, just kind of, just kind of let them train. Um, you know, another part of like, so with Shiko, 60% of my lifts were variations and they're variations that are in there to fix technique. Um, you know, and in a lot of cases, those variations, their pauses at really tough spots, right? So let's say you're pitching forward in the squat and you have to pause on the halfway up, right? So that's right where you're pitching. So this this variation just punishes bad positions. In fact, you wouldn't even be able to pause for two, three seconds if you're pitched too far forward. You'll have to keep moving or you'll fall over. So a lot of the variations, if you put the right weight in the bar, it forces the lifter to figure it out regardless. Like, um, So you really don't have to do that much coaching under those situations. And he had brought that up in the article, and, and I, I really liked that because at times with my lifters, I just kind of explained to them that, you know, this is what the variation's for. Just let it do its thing. Like, you know what you're supposed to do. This variation is going to force you to do it or you just you won't be able to move the weights. Um, so for that and like there's progressions for all of that stuff, you know, like pausing on the halfway up for somebody pitching forward, like pausing on the halfway up. Pin squats would be a little bit more advanced. Um, so, you know, we drill that stuff for a period for a period of time. Now, in the in the beginning, when I was coaching, 
all I knew was what Chico did with me, right? That's the only experience I had outside of the, like the first, it was about six weeks I ran this. It was a West Side program, like a, a somebody's own twist on some West Side conjugate program. Like my first day squatting, I did a safety squat bar box squat with front facing bands. So, you know, I had that like six weeks beforehand of working with him, but it was just like this bunch of random bullshit that I was doing in the gym. It was no different than the stuff I was doing before, like just coming into the gym and doing random bullshit. So when I had started with him, that's basically all I knew, right, was um, those variations. And every variation, like for the squats, we were in comp stance with bar placement. Um, for the bench, it was comp grip, feet down, full arch. For the deadlift, it was competition stance, just like how you would pull in a uh, in a competition. So these variations, the fact that they were in those competition stances, it forced you to correct the technique issues within the actual competition movement, and they they work extremely well um, for fixing technique stuff. Uh, the you know, they're not always you know, they're not always capable of being loaded to heavier weights. Like I you know, there were and they work, but in some cases you know, when people are starting the sport later and they've developed, and I, I mentioned this earlier, and they developed strengths and weaknesses based off of what they were doing before, oftentimes it's not just a, a skill issue. There is a strength deficit, a strength difference. Um, you know, we need to put variations in there that kind of change angles enough where they can really strengthen those weak areas within the as close to the competition movement as we can get it so that the loads and everything else can be similar uh you know and have a, a really good plan to get that stuff to happen so like for example uh leg strength tends to be i think a general weakness amongst most lifters you know beginners and stuff so the whole you know back strength for one if you go on the internet people will tell you your back can be a limiting factor on the squat that's fucking bullshit and you know in my experiences every beginner can out pull their squat it's not a it's not a back issue granted the squat's a lot more technical than the than the deadlift um but still, they'll be caving forward. The chest will be falling forward in the squat too. Which again, it's a lot of it's a skill thing. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of times they'll figure out the deadlift with light weights, and then you know, under heavier weights, you just see the hips rise in the back rounding. Um, same thing with the squat; would be pretty good under lighter weights. Then heavier weights just start pushing that chest forward. Uh, so, you know, leg strength I think tends to be a lagging area amongst the majority of lifters. Um, the back strength thing in the squat too, where I, you know, I think that's just like one of those things that just carried over from multiply powerlifting. Um, you know, when Elite FTS was the only thing that produced information on the on the strength sports. Uh, so, you know, in multiply when you're wearing your or even any type of geared lifting, um, 
you know, for a multiply, if you have knee wraps, briefs, a suit, that's all basically giving you stuff on the lower half, right? It's basically your hips and your quads, right? Think of that. You're juicing them up with all kinds of gear uh, to be able to move more weight. Um, single ply is the same. You know, they're using knee wraps and, you know, the no briefs. The, the suit's made out of a different material. Uh, but it's basically your hips and your quads, right? So it's getting it moving out of the hole. Your back needs to be strong enough to keep up. Uh, so if you actually look at how like a lot of these multi guy, the multiply guys are built, girls too, they have very large backs but small ass and quads. Um, you know they're they're built better for their sport. So in those cases, the back can be a limiting factor in the squat uh, because of because of all the gear. Uh, and I think, and you know, one of the good things that I think came from all of this is. You know, those guys really do preach like blasting the back, blast the back, blast the back. So a lot of their accessories and stuff are um, focused on building a bigger back. And I think, you know, if you look at the injuries in the sport of powerlifting, they're very low compared to other sports. Uh, you know, and people, shoulders, hips, knees tend to hurt and stuff, but back tends to be a, a, a big spot. Uh, so, you know, it builds a lot of tissue resiliency back there. And, uh, you know, just having a lot of mass back there is protective alone, too. So, you know, I think that's a, actually a really good takeaway um, from all of that is do a lot of back work with your accessories, I think, for general health. Um you know, I, I think the back plays a, a major role in the in the squat and the deadlift um, too. So like there will be some uh, the and the and the bench like even to hold your arch under heavier weight, right? That weight's gonna want to crush down that arch. So to maintain that extended position, the back plays the back plays an important uh, position there too. So there there will be some carryover, but it, you know. For beginner lifters, it just it, leg strength is just not there, and even like some of the intermediate ones I have, like they need to have better leg strength. Um, so, you know, when I was doing, I basically, you know, in the beginning, I didn't. I'm coaching, and I have a very limited knowledge base. So. I just knew, I knew what I knew and I wasn't going to mess around things that, you know, I quite didn't understand and I didn't think were that important. So everybody would kind of just get similar variations to me based off of the weaknesses of their lifts. And this was perfect because it matched the skill level of my coaching at the time. I could look at somebody and be like, okay, you're losing position on this part of the squat. Here are the variations we use for that. And so the block would still be focused on fixing those issues. And it would, and like everybody saw good success. Um, but I knew as I, as I moved along, like, you know, the people I was, uh, the lifters that I was coaching earlier on are now becoming elite. I need to be a more elite coach in order to keep their progress going. Like, I can't just keep running the same stuff over and over and hope that it works. Um, you know, so one of the things that I started to do more of, well, and, the, and this is a direct influence of, you know, the Zach Coopers and Ryan Gleason's and now like Jeremy Hartman's um, is the and even like um, one of my lifters in Germany lifts with one of Detmar Wolf's guys. Um, so, you know, even seeing how they do things, uh, you know, on the German national team and stuff with the variations, um, you know, it, it makes me think a little bit like there, there is a time and a place where 
you know, I think the Eastern Europeans, right, when something breaks down, they look at it as it's a breakdown in skill, right? So it's all neuromuscular coordination, right? And I could actually better argue for that than I could for the other way around. Um, because in a lot of cases, right, you'll somebody's pitching forward will just keep that same breakdown in the squat. A lot of people want to say that it's a it's a quad strength issue. Um, but yeah, you could take these people, put them on a leg press, and they could do, you know, more than double the amount of weight on a leg press that they can on a squat. And now there are a ton of other factors there, right? But the quad strength is there. You just you're just lacking skill in the squat, like stabilizing the weight, learning how to, you know, drive the hips forward to get them underneath the bar, right out of the hole, stuff like that. Um, you just don't know how to use your quads within the lifts, and that's where those pause on the halfway up pin squats. They teach you how to how to keep your hips under the bar and really, you know, drive up with your legs and drive the back into the bar and everything move together. Um, so I definitely do think that those things help. But also, you know, why do we also see some of the similar breakdowns happen in the deadlift, right? When they go to break the floor, right? It's kind of the same thing. I guess they don't really know how to use their quads or how to load the weight properly into their hips and legs and back. Um, but you start to see like similar breakdowns. So one of the things that I've been doing a lot more is, you know, if there's pitching forward in the squat, which we still use the same variations that I was using before. I love tempos for, for that stuff too. Um, you know, and the other thing with tempo squats, so we'll do like a three, zero, three or a two, one, two is when you make somebody slow down out of the hole, it builds, it builds confidence that when it's, it's moving slow, they won't give up in the squat because they're used to being in that position for a prolonged period of time. Um, and I'll tell you, even one of the most impressive things I thought in November, which basically was, I had a group of mostly beginners competing for the first time, um, and a couple others that are competing, uh, that have competed a, a one time, and then I had two people who've competed a, co- a couple times also. But literally every single one of them on their third attempts, I was kind of you know in one of those moods coaching where I was like, I'm gonna put some weight on the bar that I'm more confident that they can hit than not. But it's going to be fucking hard. And let, let's see what happens when the nerves are high and like and they grinded out some squats like they were heavy and they stuck with it and they stayed upright and like they were they were able to push through. Yeah, a couple of them, you know, had a little more technical breakdown during their testing that I wasn't comfortable putting that much weight on the bar. Uh, and letting them grind it, grind out because they haven't earned the right to be lifting in bad positions yet. And that's kind of like a, another thing with the technique is a beginner doesn't need to put an extra five or 10 pounds on that weight, on that bar, on the platform, in the gym that's going to be pushing them around so that they're practicing bad reps. You know, you earn the right to be able to lift poor reps because um, at, at some point there is going to be technique breakdown. I see too often, like these lifters who've competed one or two times, they haven't been lifting that long, and like they just want to let the fucking gram know that they hit a PR. Their knees are kissing together, their chest is caving in, and what's gonna happen is, you know, 
I don't I don't necessarily think they're going to get hurt from doing this if volumes are in check, right? I don't think your biomechanics are necessarily a risk for injury. I think as long as your loads are managed and you're training in similar positions all of the time and you're not increasing them by more than 10% for a given week, um, you know, I th- you're going to be you're probably going to be okay. Um, and I actually think you know, they might be preventative of injury because you're never going to be able to load it enough to fucking get hurt because you're in such shitty positions. And then what's what's going to happen is you're going to train like that for a fucking year. You're going to get stuck all of a sudden. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to go to a different coach and then you're going to have to take a major step backwards. And it's going to be the most fucking frustrating thing you ever do in your life. And it, it will literally make you question whether even you want to do this sport because you're going to have to fix that in order to put more weight on the bar. As a beginner... The number one goal of training is perfect technique. I don't give a shit what anybody writes on the internet about that. Like, I literally, in the beginning, you're going to have beginner gains. No matter what you fucking do, you're going to add weight to your total. So let's come out of that wave of beginner gains. Yeah, maybe it might be a little bit less because I'm forcing you to keep your fucking knees out and keep you upright in the squat. But you're going to be set up for better long-term success because your positions are going to be able to handle heavier weights. Um, And that's not even, you know, the article on the Internet that I referenced in the beginning actually didn't say, you know, that it was okay for that stuff to happen. uh, I'm pretty sure that it wouldn't be um, for that. You know, maybe some little knee twitching or something. You know, somebody might might be okay with, and at, at a given time, I am too. But for a beginner, absolutely not. Like as a beginner, your technique should be perfect. Um, there's a time and a place where breakdowns okay, and you can start fucking around with things. But it's it's not in the first couple of years of your lifting career unless you can win a national championship and compete at the world level. Um, there's no reason. There's no reason to do that. Uh, you know, Instagram's great for some things. Uh, for that, not so much. Um, and the whole like, oh, well, this person squats like that. Like, Garrett, Garrett Blevins, his knees come in and he's going to massive fucking squat. Not everybody's Garrett Blevins, uh, especially if you just started lifting. Um, somebody like that, yeah, that's probably a little bit different. I don't, I honestly don't know if I would fix his knees caving in. Um, if, if he was my lifter, I, I would probably still do variations that would target that part of the lift because to me that is showing a weakness within a certain part of the lift that we can probably improve. Uh, but at the same time, I don't know if I care that he knows he needs to push his knees out. I'm not going to tell him he would need to push his knees out. Um, so, you know, and that's actually a accidental good lead into this next part here. So with somebody like that, or, you know, some of my lifters, when they start showing those, like, those technical issues that may or may not be important, um, you know, I guess that's something that every coach needs to figure out. I don't think the knees caving in are as important as the chest falling forward. Sometimes they, they're a package deal. Um, so in those cases, like I was saying before, I'll use a lot of the pauses halfway up, pin squats, stuff like that, uh, tempos. But also... I'll put them at an angle that forces them to use more legs and less and less back, right? So we'll do high bar wide stand squats. Um, if I want to, right? Because if we're pitching forward in the squat, 
and in the deadlift if somebody's doing that like leg strength is just something that absolutely can be improved um so i'll put them in a high bar wide stance squat if they pitch forward at you know you can get a get away with a little bit of pitching in this position here but if you pitch forward too much you're literally going to fall over so it does force the lifter to figure out how to stay upright um you know it also just it puts more on the ass and the legs um that's just you know there's less back you're a little bit more upright uh, so that literally challenges that position quite a bit. Um, and what I like about it is, you know, whenever we're doing variations, we want the forces, speeds, and angles to be as similar as possible for carryovers, the law of specificity. So with a lot of the variations I learned from Chico, the forces are a little bit less, right? So they tend to be... You know, anywhere between 65 and 80%, let's say, um, programmed. And the volume would be a little bit higher on those. So obviously, as the reps go f- further into the set, uh, the effort's a little bit higher. So there is, you know, so the forces are starting to get a little bit closer with the higher rep sets, you know. Like, if I'm doing a pause on the halfway up for triples at 75%, that third rep at 75% is harder than the first one. Um, so it's starting to get, you know, the effort for that third rep is probably in the 80 percentile range somewhere and that's kind of where we we'd want to be anyways um but you know when you're pausing in those positions that are really tough within the lift itself it's hard to really load them up um you know i i use them in a lot of cases to keep effort high but loads lower so it's I'll, I'll talk about like how I how I structure the program because we lift heavy every every day we're in the gym, um, so it's one of those days that I can use a variation to keep loads down a little bit more. The high bar wide stance squats. If somebody you know, it may be a weakness in the beginning, and we may have to spend a whole block just catching it up. Um, but that's something we can like really push. Um, Alyssa took a high bar wide stance squat 10 pounds under her one rep max before nationals. So, you know, I think in a lot of cases, if we want, you know, that wide stance too, like how it forces you to push your knees out, like your knees just can't cave in from that position. Um, you know, so it really challenges you to do that and really can, you know, teach that part of the movement so that when you bring your feet closer, all of a sudden, like every, you know, the knees are staying out, the chest, is, the chest is tall and we can start loading the shit out of that competition squat. And we, and you know, in a lot of cases we'll see a big, a big jump, um, just from doing that alone. But like just moving stance and bar placement around and really like pushing it a little bit, you can actually start to add some weight. Uh, one of the things that I've started to do with, programming also is just is kind of using what i see in training a lot more to write the program so i would you know in the beginning i would just i would use all of those variations within a given block right so one week we might use we might have used like pause halfway up squats the next week we might have used pin squats um and you can load them very differently and for different rep ranges and and stuff like that um Another week, maybe tempo squats. So, like, I would use all of these variations within a block. Um, 
But then as I went along, I found it was easier to use one and get everything you can kind of get out of it or allow them to continue to have that same experience. Because the second time you do that variation, it tends to be better than the first time. And then the third time you do it tends to be better than the second time. And then all of a sudden it starts to get into a little bit of a groove and then you can literally push it. Um, so let's say somebody does high bar wide stand squats. They can't hit the numbers on the sheet. We need to go down and wait. I'll spend a whole block of just building that up so that they can hit um, those early block numbers that they were incapable of hitting first. Right. So let's say I put 75% for five sets of four week one, but we had to drop it to 65% because it was just too heavy. So we'll run the whole block as is in there, but we'll, you know, obviously have to drop the weights and stuff. And then hopefully, you know, the goal will be by the start of the next block to be able to hit that 75% for the five sets of four. And then we can start pushing it a little bit, you know. So what I want them to be able to do is with the majority, even the pauses on the halfway up and ones that are more difficult, I want them to be able to get into the 80% ranges and hit it for triples. If they can't, we're going to continue to leave it in there until they can. Um, so, you know, a good example of this, Emo, Emo Danielle with, I uh, gave her a close grip Larson press. So the strength of her bench presses are arch. Her range of motion is very small. She's got a very large arch. Um, so you take away that that strength by picking her feet up, and all of a sudden the bench gets really fucking hard. You move that grip in, so she's her comp grip is max width, 81 centimeters, index fingers on the rings. You bring that grip in, and now I've basically taken away every aspect of strength she has within that within that lift. I took away her arch, and I made that range of motion as large as possible. Um, you know, and with a big arch too, like that tricep strength is is huge. Um, so you know, clearly we're we're targeting what she needs on her comp bench. Um, so with the close grip Larson press, we spent a whole block of just lowering weights, like not even getting close to where she needs to be. It's in there for another block. If she still can't get up to those weights, it will be in there for another block. Um, you know, I used to put more like in the when I started using variations for a block, I'd leave them in for four weeks and then change it up. But I, I've started to not do that as much, like just allowing training to kind of dictate where the where I think their programming should go and not just changing it for some arbitrary number. Um, like Jess Ward, I gave her opposite stance deadlifts. So she pulled conventional at nationals. I gave her sumo deadlifts. Her sumo deadlifts look really good. Um, so in that first block, it was like a lot of volume with them and stuff, like just trying to, you know, she has that whole hips rising, back rounding thing on the deadlift. Uh, but she has a very big squat and her squat's very upright. So it's just, you know, trying to teach her how to load that weight into her legs and hips and uh, get a little bit more leg strength in the deadlift. So I threw the sumo deadlift in her program for that. 
Um, but because it looked good, I left it in for another block and we're lifting it heavy in this block because let's challenge it with heavier weights. Let's see where the breakdown starts to happen. And then it's going to give me an idea of where we can go from there. Chances are she's probably going to be pulling sumo, um, in competitions because I think it just, it gives her a better chances more. She's got more legs with back in that position. You're going to lift more weight, um, on, under those conditions. It doesn't mean we're going to stop training conventional though. Um, you know, it's nice to have both deadlifts be similar, similar weights. Um, you know, and another, I think another thing too is like, um, cause that brings up a, another point is if somebody has that type of breakdown in the deadlift where the hips are rising and the back is rounding like that. So what I used to do is I would still keep competition deadlifts. So if they pulled conventional, those conventional deadlifts would stay in their, in their training block, um, year round. It would just make up a smaller portion of the total amount of volume, the further away from a meet. The problem with this is if they have that type of, we'll say strength discrepancy between the legs and the back. Yeah. I guess we could pull some good, lighter weight comp deadlifts and stuff. Um, but if the back is stronger than the legs and we're taking 20% of our volume and still targeting the back within that movement, it's going to take longer for the legs to catch up with the back. Um, what we need to do is at least maintain back strength, um, while building up leg strength and changing angles and stuff within the deadlift. Yeah. It puts less emphasis and kind of changes the emphasis on the back a little bit, but it's still being worked. Uh, and then we'll hammer it a lot with accessories. Uh, so somebody like Jess, who I took out conventional and gave her sumo deadlifts, you know, there'll be a lot of rowing and stuff like that, but see to good mornings. Um, and even like I'll use some of the squat volume, uh, to target that like I've started to use box squats for if I've taken out conventional in somebody's program and I've given them all sumo I want to make sure I'm maintaining back strength for a lot of those lifters they've gotten box squats um, they're not sitting on the box they're just tapping the box but they're pushing their ass back as far as they can and it's kind of just like a really like I hate this term but I'm going to use it anyways hip dominant pause squat off the box um just to kind of keep that lower back in there. And at the same time, like that helps teach you how to push your knees out and drive your hips forward out of the hole, which is what we want to stay upright in the squat. Um, so you kind of get some carryover into the deadlift there. If somebody's pulling sumo, uh, and I make them do an entire block of conventional, Oftentimes they get high bar wide stand squats because it's similar angles to the deadlift. It's just to kind of make sure we're holding on to those those strengths that we have. And of course, the uh, accessory work and stuff is going to be appropriate um, for that. But what I do now with this stuff is I completely remove exercises that are going to target that are going to be in that type of position where it's going to continue to strengthen the already strong part and not emphasize the part that we need to catch up. So if I want the legs to catch up to the back, everything I do is going to be so that the legs will catch up to the back. So Kelly, same issue on the deadlift, hips rising, back rounding. 
Um, it's gotten so much better uh, from when she first started. Uh, but for the last eight weeks, she has not pulled a conventional deadlift. It was nothing but sumo deadlifts. Um, and then a ton of leg accessory work, hip accessory work. The squats were, you know, she's done a lot of high bar wide stance squats. She actually has high bar wide stance pause squats right now. So everything we did was to just build that leg strength up um, so that it would catch up to her back. She pulled this week was the first time that she's pulled conventional over two months and she took 90% for sets of five. So we clearly found, and that's like, there's, you know, that whole, the first time you do it, it's a little weird when you haven't done it for a period of time too. So now we'll drive that conventional and kind of see where we're at. But, you know, we did, we found the weakness, we hammered it until, you know, those weights were appropriate, right? It's not like we just spent the entire time in the 70% rep range, um, cueing technique, technique, technique. We took those variations and we loaded the fucking shit out of them until I felt that her numbers in uh, between the sumo deadlift and the squats uh, was at a point where I wanted to bring that conventional deadlift back in and see where we're at. So, you know, a little over two months later, she's pulling what was her opener in August for sets of five. Not just one set, but multiple sets of five. I think she took four sets. Um, you know, uh, Alyssa's kind of going through the same thing where... I just brought conventional back in now, but it's pretty light with volume stuff, and we've done a, a lot of sumo. Her sumo wasn't that great, um, but it still had some carryover to the conventional deadlift, which was nice. Uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, she was starting to like really kind of figure out how to load her hips and legs using that sumo stance, so I wanted to see what that looked like with the conventional. Um, normally, in these situations, she would just pull conventional. However... I felt that there was more that we could get from that sumo deadlift, even if she's going to pull conventional. So I put a sumo deadlift plus deadlift below the knees in there. You know, she's having a hard time loading her her hips and legs. This forces it. So it's basically you deadlift it up and then you bring it as low to the ground as you can without touching and then you bring it up again. So using the weight on the way down to actually load your back hip and legs and it fixes start position and it forces you to kind of do it right and you want to get as low to the ground as you can so that there's as much carry over to your competition lift as possible so i put that in there just to continue because i know there's more we can get from that sumo deadlift to carry over into her um, conventional deadlift so you know the things that i'm seeing in training i'm trying to let pick the variations more even if it's a variation for an opposite stance deadlift or a non-competition stance um lift so everybody's kind of you know i have some different rules when it comes to like that stuff for everybody but all of these variations are decided off of what i see technique breakdown so you know julia is a beginner uh, I think her best squat's like 255. It's a pretty decent squat for somebody who's only been lifting for eight months, maybe. Um, so she has a little bit of a, you know, in the beginning, it's staying upright. That's the like number one goal. Uh, then, you know, as the weights get heavier, she has this little twitch in her knees. It's nothing like 
serious. It might not even ever limit how much weight she can put on the bar. However, I think it's a weakness that we can still fix. So she's got a ton of high bar wide stand squats. And the first time she did a high bar wide stand squat, one of her knees was coming in so freaking far, right? So it clearly is, you know, maybe in her comp stance, it's not a weakness, but there's something we can strengthen there. Cause when I, I put more emphasis on that and I, I made that harder for her, like she just couldn't do it in the beginning. We had to drop weight significantly um, in the beginning, but she started even with the lighter weight, she started to figure it out a little bit. Uh, she had comp squats last night and like I said, her best squats like 255 and she was taking easy doubles with 225 and the knees were, knees were solid. Chest was up like me watching that. I know there's more than 255 on that, on that squat. Um, you know, so I think even in the case of somebody as elite as like Garrett Blevins, I think doing a variation like that, that just forces him to do it. It's clearly a weakness that can be fixed that might get you an extra five or 10 pounds on your one rep max at, at that level. You know, for somebody like Julia, it's going to be a lot more because she's still in that beginner gain um, range of things. Um, but. You know, even though a little bit of knee twitching or the knees coming in a little bit might not be that catastrophic to somebody's total, it doesn't mean we don't want to fix it or work on it or um, attack it. So, you know, and that was something that I think was instilled in me working with Shiko for three years was like it's basically powerlifting is just a, a lifelong journey of chasing perfect technique it doesn't necessarily exist right and yes every everybody's different and i think the differences more come from stance width toe flail um whether they're going to pull conventional or sumo um you know i think that's where the individuality comes from but the rules you know of what i think are perfect technique we're always going to strive for i might not necessarily like yell those cues out to somebody or think that it's going to hinder their performance but it's going to literally i'm going to give them a variation in their program that's going to target that because i think if we don't right and we just take those little technical uh call them defects those little technical defects and we just let them go and just write down sets and reps and stuff on a piece of paper is it necessarily going to yield the best results over the long term like uh, i just i don't know where you would go with that um you know you just keep loading it more and and hope for the best like i, I think you know attacking weak angles definitely has a lot more carryover and just for like overall lifter health too but a lot more carryover to increasing the lifts than what they might get credit for i think all too often coaches just look at programming as being like the number one aspect of improving performance and the program is nothing but a living document that needs to be adapted on almost a daily basis uh, and it's just a guide to follow so literally when i write my programs i use percentages i use the lifters put last set rps and there is a monitoring tool 
Um, but the percentages are a guide. So I also have these things I call them intensity intervals. So based off of the rep range, there's a range of intensities that a lifter can use and they can't go below and they can't go above these intensities. And it's all to make sure that our acute chronic work ratios are in check. And also sometimes you feel like shit and you're just going to move the weight. Um, I, if you give too much leeway to drop weight, it just builds mental weakness. And I'll tell you, I, I feel the majority of our squat success is because we're not scared of it. Um, because we lift heavy every single time we're in the gym. Uh, and when I say heavy, it doesn't mean we're lifting greater than 90% of one rep max, but our effort is extremely high. The majority of our last set RPEs will be eights and nines um, that they're writing down. In a lot of cases, it's probably another rep in there or something. Um, as long as we're not going to failure, I want it to be hard. I want there to be a lot of effort. Um, and you can do this with appropriate load management. Uh, the acute chronic work ratio stuff, I think, is gold um, when it comes to this. Like, the majority of programs have always stressed, you know, you come above baseline, but then you need periods below baseline to recover, right? It's built off of a mechanical stress model that's extremely outdated with a ton of flaws. However, you know, let's say three weeks, you just, you add volume from, you know, week one hits your baseline, week two, you add volume, week three, you add volume, week four, you deload or something, right? So that deload week is that like drop in stress. Um, it tends to be like lighter and stuff. However, you can deload with singles at 90% because it's more about volume than it is about intensity. I think, you know, this is another thing that has survived from multiply is, oh, your CNS needs so much time to recover from lifting big weights. Yeah, fat guys in suits pushing a thousand pounds on a squat. Yeah, maybe they need time to recover. But if you're not having any gear, gear on or anything, you're lifting raw. I mean, yeah, you're probably going to get psychologically burnt out if you try to max out every time in the gym. But, like, your nervous system's not getting fucking fried. Um, I don't care how much weight you lift. Yeah, it might, like, tire you out a little bit afterwards. Um, might beat you up. And I think it beats you up in a lot of cases because if you do that all of the time, your volumes are so fucking low that it's not protective against injuries. Um, the acute chronic work ratio, like when I've talked about this before, there's a minimal level of volume that you need to do that is protective of injury. And once you get below that, that's where you start running into problems. So as long as your volumes are appropriate, you could probably do it more often than you think. Um, so we do, we literally, like if you ask my lifters, we don't fucking deload. We lift with high effort every single time we put that bar on our back or in our hands in the gym. Um, and I think that's like what a big part of our success comes from. Um, I manage loads appropriately. So I, I do still do the, you know, there'll be weeks above baseline, weeks at baseline, weeks below baseline. There'll be high stress days, medium stress days, low stress days. But that doesn't mean that the effort changes. The effort is always high. Um, so, you know, with the acute chronic work ratio, I try to keep everything between 0.8 and 1.3. Um, so 1.0 is baseline. So I could have a week where we drop below baseline. So say between 0.8, 0.9, somewhere like that. 
they're probably doing doubles of on some type of variation at 80% or triples of a variation at 80%. Like it's probably the amount of weight on the bar is just a lot higher and the total volume's a lot lower where a week where they're getting greater than baseline, like 1.1, 1.2 up there somewhere, they're probably doing sets of fives and sixes or there might be a squat pyramid in there. There's a lot of, the weight on the bar is less, but the sets and reps are a lot more and the total tonnage is a lot higher. Um, so we go through that process quite a bit, uh, but we don't, you know, no lifter would ever look at that week where, you know, they're taking high bar wide stand squats for five triples at 80%, five triples at 80% is a pretty moderately hard comp lift day. So doing that with a variation that, you know, the wider stance is harder for them. The bar placement's harder for them. That's a fucking hard ass day of training. Um, but because the volumes are lower and then the next week we lower the weight a little bit and that just kind of helps manage psychological burnout. Um, you know, I think you get used to it when, when it's hard all the time is you just, you just get used to it. it is what training is. Uh, you know, we have a saying, in the gym, sometimes training's hard. So, you know, when people are like, oh man, that's heavy, like that's that's what we'll say. Um so I kind of went off on a little bit of a rant. Uh with some of the programming stuff. Uh I, I mainly had intentions to just kind of make this technique but I guess like everything kind of just like falls into one place anyways right like the technique I see from a lifter is what builds the program and the variations and the exercises that I'm choosing to use and stuff and you know the article that I referenced even though we may disagree on some things I think at the end of the day we actually do the exact same thing you give somebody the appropriate variations for that lifter with the right weight and the right amount of repetitions you let the variation do the work um, I think it's important that they understand what the why the variations in there so they can focus on that one thing so like a high bar wide stand squat like um, push your knees out right that explain that to them in the beginning they know they have to do it you don't need to tell them every single repetition because there's going to be a lot of bad reps in the beginning like they're trying but with conscious effort they'll get there um, and it's not necessarily always just lowering the weight and this is probably what the article's saying too and I'm just kind of misreading some of the things but it's not always lowering the weight to see perfect reps right as a coach you need to be to identify conscious effort because that conscious effort will catch up so if I see somebody like we'll just use that same example really trying to drive their knees out but they're coming in a little bit I'm not going to lower that weight on that high bar wide stand squat we're going to leave the weight right where it is because how hard that conscious effort is in that variation if their feet were closer they needs to be staying out they're just at a very disadvantaged position and you can ride that wave with that conscious effort and within a couple of weeks you'll start to see much improvement with the same weights so you don't it's not always necessarily load less it's just let them lift and i i you know at the right times let them lift at the right times and, and i do think the article was kind of uh was kind of saying that piece but if they just can't figure it out, right? Like if you just see a complete loss of tension and there's just like not that conscious effort, it's just too heavy. Like obviously lower lower the weights in that in that case. Um, but 
I think a lot of this stuff just comes with, like for me, it just came with time and watching people lift and coaching. Uh, it's one of the other th- reasons why, like, uh, you know, if you're not a full-time powerlifting coach, you're only going to get so good as a coach. Like uh, the fact that I get to, all I do is watch people squat, bench and deadlift uh, a week, I think has really like allowed me to improve as a as a as a coach and if I was doing it part-time so you know let's say I had half the amount of people I have and I was still like coaching adult fitness classes or doing a lot of like one-on-one personal training or I just don't think I would have had this same success um or improvements or you know my ceiling would have probably been much lower as a as a coach um, I know there are coaches out there that do that but they had a lot more experience with the sport earlier on and I think in that case in those cases there um, you know it was the same thing they just everything they did was to get better as a lifter or whatever it may be and now they just kind of do that part-time and do something else um, you know and you can you can develop that way too of course Uh, but we're getting close to an hour so i'm gonna wrap it up um stay strong but oh hold on Alyssa would get mad at me if i didn't say this part she used to in the beginning quite a bit Uh, make sure you follow me on instagram kw can follow our team precision power lifting systems stay strong boston